Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we continue our series, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, with a message entitled, Christian Lifestyle. So turn to your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When people today speak about a lifestyle, they most typically refer to subgroups in our culture that choose a certain way of living. You know, families tend to live in either suburbia or on a farm. Hipsters tend to choose fashions that are outside of the cultural mainstream, and they live in large urban centers. Minimalists tend to reject all the trappings of culture, and they tend to live in the bush. Then there are the adventurers, and for instance, because, you know, my interest in motorcycles, I've come to know that there are a group of people who travel the world on adventure motorcycles, and many of them do it by themselves, and then they keep a blog, which is followed by a large group of a subsection of the population. But if you don't know it, there is another group of people. They're retired people, and they're nomads, and they live in luxurious RVs, and they rove all over North America with no home. You know, the point I'm making is that the term lifestyle, well, at least in popular usage, well, it tends to, in our day, describe subgroupings of people who have chosen a certain way of living and who attract others who favor that way of living as well. You know, in this regard, sometimes to be a Christian means to think of the Christian life as an adjective, you know, the Christian hipster or the Christian biker or the Christian artist, I mean, that kind of a thing. But does the Christian faith entail a lifestyle of its own? And the answer is yes, it does. In just four verses, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 to 12, Paul describes just that, a Christian lifestyle. So let's read our text. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, many commentators, when examining these four short verses, divide them into two sections. Section one consists of Paul's commands among the Christian community. Brotherly love refers to the love that we show between brothers and sisters in Christ. And then section two consists of Paul's commands for Christians as they live their lives in the wider non-Christian culture. That includes living quietly and working hard. Now, that kind of an arrangement of this passage works, but you know, for my part, I tend to see this text in terms of a holistic Christian lifestyle. It's covered in verses 9 to 11, and then in verse 12, Paul gives the result or the outcome of that kind of living. So while this here is not an exhaustive list, Paul here outlines three very identifiable features of the Christian lifestyle. So first, the Christian lifestyle consists in brotherly love or love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's quite clear that love for fellow believers is central to New Testament teaching. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is, love for fellow believers is the defining mark of the Christian. Or listen to what John taught, 1 John 2, verses 9 to 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, love for brothers and sisters assumes we're in relationship with brothers and sisters, that we are within the fellowship of a local church, and that we're actively pursuing the good and the well-being of our brothers and sisters. Paul himself gives us plenty of examples as to how love is pursued within the Christian community. Here's one example, Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Two things. Then Paul further, Romans 12, 15 and 16 adds, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. These are but some of the example of what happens within Christian fellowship or what marks the Christian lifestyle. And by the way, I love that part that tells us to associate with the lowly. You know, in the wider culture in which we live, people tend to associate with those who fit in their socioeconomic groupings. And that's so for all sorts of reasons. Here's an example. If you're wealthy, you can afford vacations that the poor can't afford so you don't necessarily take them on vacation with you. But when you're a Christian, friendships, bonds of deep love actually occur right across the socioeconomic divide. That is the Christian lifestyle. A rich couple will have no difficulty at all being a part of a poor couple's Bible study group, even though it's stuffed into a very small and modest apartment. Love compels that relationship. And that's one of the reasons why, and I've mentioned it before, but I love the book of Philemon. When Paul sends Philemon's slave back to him, he sends him back. Well, listen to Paul's words in Philemon verse 16. No longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And no one in the ancient Greek world had ever heard of a relationship like that, a place where slaves and slave owners would sit together in the fellowship of the Lord and confess that they are brothers and sisters of one another and that they were one another's keeper. If church tradition has this right, then we know that Onesimus the slave became one of the bishops in the early church. That's just Christian lifestyle. And so in this section of 1 Thessalonians, the section I've, I've entitled The Christian Lifestyle, and we see that Paul begins with the words, now concerning brotherly love. And ah, yeah, Paul would have addressed that topic while he was with them. And then he adds, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now, this matter of having been taught by God, well, it's clearly a quote. Paul's probably referring to Isaiah 54, verse 13, which says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. That is, there is a time coming, says God, when I will teach my own children myself. And Paul is now affirming that that's what's going on. What can I say to you about brotherly love? He says, you've been taught by God. Notice he's not saying that God has taught them, you know, the four Greek words for love and the shades of meaning between them, but he is saying God is teaching them how to put love into action. The Holy Spirit is opening up their eyes as to how to make each other the object of their concerns. And all true Christians understand this. How many times has the Holy Spirit nudged someone 
to care about someone they might not have noticed or to give themselves to meeting the needs of someone? How is it that we once only cared for ourselves, but now we find ourselves caring for others? The answer is God is teaching us. In fact, that phrase, taught by God, it's actually only one word in the Greek. And and fascinatingly enough, that word is found nowhere else in the New Testament. As far as we know, there is no usage of that word in the ancient Greek literature of that day. See, it seems quite likely to me that Paul invented that word, theodidaktoi, and it's in the present tense, meaning it's an ongoing tutoring by God. Learning to love is an ongoing discipline, and we're never finished with our lessons on love. Now, Paul's still not done. Look now at verse 10a, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia as is true of so many of the cryptic statements that we find in 1 Thessalonians, we don't know what the details are here. But when we read this, well, I'm personally reminded of something that Paul wrote later to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 2. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. (laughs) I love the pairing of those two images, abundant joy paired with extreme poverty, and it leads to a result. The result is a wealth of generous giving to needy Jewish believers in Judea. That's what the Macedonians were doing. And is Paul talking about that here in 1 Thessalonians? Well, we don't know, but we do get a sense of how difficult their times had become. I mean, these new believers in Thessalonica, well, they might have suffered economic struggles after they had come to Christ. You know, when they know that you're a Christian, no one shows up at your coffee and muffin shop anymore for coffee, and suddenly you're struggling to feed your family. Well, Paul is saying, I know the distressing and dark times in which you're living, but I also know that they haven't lessened your desire to show love to others at every level. It's quite frankly amazing. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes the bi-monthly magazine, Truth and Life. This year, Truth and Life has had a unique discipleship focus, with each issue highlighting a different marker of discipleship. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission and provide trustworthy Bible resources at no cost. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. have said that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12, Paul has been articulating several very important marks of the Christian lifestyle. Now, just a little word to all of you who care about things like grammar and how that leads to the understanding of a passage. 
it's clear that verses 9 to 10a form a basic Christian teaching about love. And then verses 10b to 11, which begin with the words, we urge you brothers. That phrase is the only directive in this passage. And then it's followed by a series of four infinitives. Now, normally an infinitive is begun with the word to. So Paul says, I urge you to do four things, to do so more and more, and then second, to aspire to live quietly, then third, to mind your own affairs, and then fourth, to work with your own hands. Now, just so you see how I'm handling my text, I'm taking two of the infinitives, that is number two and three, that is to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and I'm making them into one point because in my estimation, those two things really say one thing. Okay, enough about the grammar lesson. Notice that after having mentioned that he has noticed their God-taught love, Paul now has three things that he demands of believers, and it's in keeping with the Christian lifestyle. First, when it comes to love, they're to keep at it, to continue to focus on its importance. That's what he says in 10b. But we urge you, brothers, to, there's the infinitive, to do this more and more. Look, Paul's not pointing out a deficiency in their love. I mean, far from it. But he does know that if ever we stop emphasizing love, or if ever we stop practicing love, or if ever we stop trying to outdo one another in love, very quickly, love will fall off our radar. Strikes me again that all Christians need to regularly be reminded and encouraged never to stop caring for one another. It's Christian lifestyle. Second, Paul now moves to an area of the Christian lifestyle that is less related to the relationship of believers to one another as it is to the believer's relationship to the world around them. You remember that the book of 1 Thessalonians is written against a background of distressing times. The birth of the Christian movement in Thessalonica was attended by a city-wide riot, and Paul and Silas were then expelled from the city. Now, how should Christians respond to such a miscarriage of justice and such an evil social situation? So we read verses 11a, and to aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs. More than one Bible teacher has suggested that Paul is teaching the believers not to be social revolutionaries. Don't create a massive stir in the city. If our enemies activate resources against us, it's so tempting to respond in kind. You know, maybe we should, you know, bring up our own demonstration and bear witness against all the injustices that have happened in this city. But you might want to remember here of the charges that were first brought against Paul in Thessalonica. And here I'm reading Acts 17, verses 6 and 7. It says, And when they could not find them, that is, Paul and Silas, They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So if that is what the wider Thessalonian culture thought about Paul and about Christian teaching in general, Paul is saying, prove them wrong. Live quietly, don't make a disturbance. Mind your own affairs, don't monkey in the affairs of others. Live as good neighbors and as good citizens. This matter of Christian engagement in the wider political world is a highly debated topic today. 
But I'm often reminded of what Preston Manning once said to a group of churches, and he said, if you think you will build a pipeline into the government, please understand that the government will build its own pipeline back into your church and your Christian organizations. And when it comes to political pipelines, the government knows a lot more about exerting influence in political matters than you do. So, Are there any baselines for Christian involvement, either in the world of politics or in the wider cultural realities of our world? Well, first, whatever we do, let's agree that we are not social or political revolutionaries. Romans 13, 1-2 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, that's the answer to the charge that had been made in Thessalonica. When we say that Jesus is king, we do not and will not challenge the legitimate right of kings to rule or of governors or prime ministers or chancellors or presidents. The Christian lifestyle is one which is submissive to earthly governments. You know, years ago, when our present prime minister was elected, I posted a blog encouraging Christians to pray earnestly for him and for his wife and family, along with urging us to support him wherever conscience permits us. I received a very harsh letter back reminding me of his politics. But the words of Scripture were written against a background of what were sometimes very hostile governments. Wherever we can, we are to live peaceful and quiet lives and mind our own business. Now, just so that we understand, Paul is not saying that Christians should tone down the message of the gospel. You know, in this regard, that is, gospel proclamation, Paul didn't want Christians to be quiet at all. But that's exactly the point. Let's make sure that we as believers are known for our bold gospel proclamation and not our bold political maneuvering. We're gospel people. We're not known for our views on how government ought to function. So let me ask you a question. If you were given a choice, which would you choose? To have the political world go in your favor or to reach ever more people with the gospel of Jesus? I hope I know your answer. Now, the third identifier of a uniquely Christian lifestyle. It's called hard work. It's called being known as the most honest and diligent worker in the world today verse 11b, and to work with your hands as we instruct you. You might wonder why Paul's stressing working with our hands. Does he prefer blue-collar manual labor over, you know, office jobs, let's say? Well, no, but, but understand something about the ancient Greek culture. The Greeks thought that manual labor was demeaning, and most often that slaves and servants were for serving the wealthy. In contrast, The Jews thought very differently. The rabbis of Paul's day taught that hard work was a command that was given us from God. They thought that work and the study of the word, those two were the basis for all of life. Now, clearly, on this matter, Paul agrees with the rabbis. He was, as we all know, a tent maker and never thought that it was demeaning labor. All work not only brings dignity, but it's a way of showing our love. Let's say you're a lineman you know, making sure that that power continues to flow. There's a storm and the power lines are out and you're in the middle of the night restoring people's power. If you understand it right, that's service. That's love for fellow human beings. 
Same's true of a teacher, a farmer, a carpenter, a computer programmer, a doctor or a nurse, the owner of a small business. God has created us for productivity, for caring for the needs of others, for contributing to the wider good. And so no matter what you do, it's never demeaning. You may be cleaning offices for a living after dark. But this work, if it's unto the Lord, is for his glory. It's honorable. It's life-affirming. The real problem with our society is that so many people long for the day when they'll never need to work any longer. Why is that? Have we as believers agreed with the Greeks that work is demeaning and that the rest, luxury, lying out on the beach, traveling the world, is better than caring for the needs of others? Look, I'm not denigrating retirement. Just so long as we see our retirement as our phase two of serving God and others as faithfully as we have before. But dropping out, getting all the leisure you can listen, God did not create you for that purpose. Christian people then should be known as hard workers for it is their duty unto the Lord. Now, let's end our discussion by noticing verse 12. Paul begins with the word, so that. When you live the Christian lifestyle, please notice that Paul says two things are bound to happen. First, outsiders, non-Christians, anyone who bothers to notice will recognize the value that you're providing. You're walking properly. Your lifestyle brings no harm to the gospel. Indeed, it attracts people. Second, you're dependent on no one. You're not the person who needs support. You're the person who supports others. You're not the one the state supports, you support the state. And with whatever you have left over, you give and love. Is there a Christian lifestyle? You bet there is. John, you know, I know what my dad would have told me, but let me ask you this question. Should there be a relationship between being a Christian and a work ethic? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that your dad would have told you that. I know there's an older ethic in which, you know, we always work unto the Lord. Whatever we do, we do this to please Him. And uh, of course, um, there is that. I think a Christian should be known for working harder, uh, working more diligently because, you know, God calls us to do that. We ought to ask the Holy Spirit that wherever we work to give us that kind of diligence. It is to the glory of God. It does have a marvelous witness to the wider community. Um, and it does also build our own understanding of, of what's worthy, um, that the kind of things that we're doing is a spiritual activity. So all of that, I think the answer is yes, Ben. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Great missions require great partnerships. When we join forces, we can carry the gospel of Jesus so much further than anybody could alone. This month, we're thrilled to share that Back to the Bible Canada is introducing a renewed monthly partner program now called Companions for the Gospel. Monthly partners play a key role in this ministry. They provide a reliable, consistent source of funds that helps sustain current and future gospel-centered initiatives. We want to encourage you to become a part of this essential group of partners. There are a few benefits to becoming a companion of the gospel. 
But even more important is the impact your partnership will make in sharing the truth of God's Word. To find out more, to sign up, or to give a one-time gift, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.